Happy Mother's Day. I was trying to figure out why they asked me to teach on Mother's Day. I guess they knew I had a mother and figured that qualified me. I hope you mothers are taking full advantage of the day. You'll probably pay for it uh, next month on Father's Day. How many got breakfast in bed? Oh, good. Quite a few, more than the first service. Let me guess, you got a mound of scrambled eggs that had every spice from your kitchen in it. It was kind of a gray-green color and had a taste you can't quite identify, but you can still taste. And right next to that were two uh, super crisp pieces of bacon that uh, turned to dust when you tried to pick them up. Stack of charred toast that was cold. Big glass of orange juice with a lump of concentrate still at the bottom. And all your kids lined up at the foot of your bed trying, watching you try to eat that. You know, I'll bet no matter how bad that tasted, you loved it. And after you got up and saw your kitchen and realized that it would probably be easier to move to a new house than to get that thing, you were still glad they did it because they were saying, I love you. And whether you realize it or not, uh, the only way they know how to say I love you is to try to do what you do because you're their model of love. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I asked uh, the Sunday school teachers to have the children write essays on why my mom is the best. I must have read about 300 of those, and I'm sure each mom is going to agree that theirs is the best. But I picked a couple that I wanted to read to you this morning. Here's one by Kyle Day. He's from the 4th through 6th grade chapel. Why my mom is the best. My mom is the best because she feeds me. If my dad cooked, we would go hungry. His idea of a meal is a Butterfinger and a Coke. My mom also does the wash. I love her a lot. And she does so many things that it would take me an hour to write, to name them all. Here's another one from uh, the uh, first through third grade. This is by uh, Andrea Dealey. Why my mom is the best. I love my mom so much. My mom is the best because she cares about me. And she does things with me. She takes me out. She feeds me. She does not spoil me, and I'm glad she corrects me. She does my homework with me. She gave me two brothers, and I love my mom so much. If my mom died, I would cry, but I would remember that I will soon see her again. I never know the things that my mom teaches me. That's why my mom is the best. I love you. Andrea Joy Dealey. There was another one I wanted to... I didn't want to read the whole thing. This is Joel Downer. He's got uh, several pages <laughs> front and back. And basically what he does, he just lists the things. And a lot of the things he listed were fairly standard. They showed up on most people. She makes my food. That's a, that's a priority for your kids. <laughs> she washes my clothes. She buys my clothes. She helped me ride my bike. She's nice. And he goes on to a lot of things like that. Let me read the last page. He says, uh, she's nice. She helped me learn life. She loves the family. She taught me about the Lord. She helped me know friends. She helped me talk. She helped me understand school and helped me understand sports. She helped me with my brothers. She helped me know my sisters. She helped me sing. She makes my birthdays fun, buys me birthday presents. She buys my shoes. Do you hear what he was, was, was uh, noticing? 
Things like uh, she helped me learn life. She uh, taught me about the Lord. She helped me know friends. She helped me understand school. She helped me understand sports. She helped me with my brothers. Joel's mom helps him understand life. And moms, that's your number one job. Your children need interpreters. They're thinking all the time. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to understand why they feel what they feel and exactly what they feel. They're trying to understand why people do the things they do. Why people uh, treat them the way they do. And they need you to interpret it. They need you to help them identify what they're feeling and understand it and identify what's going on, what other people are doing and understand it. There are a lot of people who try to protect their children from the harsher realities of life. And we needn't do that. But we do need to interpret it for them to help them understand what's going on, to help them understand the way they feel and the way people are acting. Easily some of my strongest memories of childhood are my mother explaining to me why my brother just hit me in the eye. She would say, he really loves you, but he just doesn't know how to express it. (laughs) Or why uh, somebody was mean to me at school. She would try to help me see what that person must be feeling inside, what they must be going through. And, And I'll always appreciate the way my mother interpreted life. She helped me see past superficials. She helped me see what, what I was really feeling, what I was thinking, what, what other people were feeling, what was really going on in their lives. And she interpreted God's love to me. You know, mothers play a, an important role. I've been, for the last six years, trying to figure out how I ever got into professional ministry. I, uh, it, it really is a question. I never planned on this. This was not my objective. And I still don't really know. But uh, I remembered, as I was preparing this sermon, uh, some... Uh, something I thought was significant. My mom used to tell me frequently that uh, her mother, my grandmother, had always desperately wanted one of her sons to be a minister. She had prayed for it constantly, and none of them ever did. But her daughter's son has. And I think mothers affect us in ways we don't even realize. We don't even see. It's not, it's not that it's, it's apparent. It's the things they build into us that come out later and manifest themselves in our lives. Uh, mothers uh, really do influence. G. Uh, Campbell Morgan, Sr., had four sons, and they were all great preachers. They profoundly affected Christianity in this country over the last uh, century. And they were all together at a reunion one time, and a reporter came and asked, when, which one of the Morgans is the best preacher? And their unanimous response was, Mom. <laughs> you know, in Scripture, whenever the childhood of a great leader is examined, the focus is always on the mother. The father just kind of serves as a backdrop. He's there and he's doing some things. But the focus is on the mother and her attitudes and her heart for the Lord. Take Moses, his mother Jochebed. She was, played a key role. She was his nurse. She took care of him. She taught him. And uh, David, we don't know who David's mother was, but in Psalm 86... He refers to her as the handmaid of God, God's servant. This is the same term that Mary uses of herself when the angel of the Lord comes and uh, tells her what's going to happen. She calls herself the, the handmaid of God. And although her son was sinless, he still needed somebody to interpret life for him, to explain what's going on around him as he was growing up as a boy. In the New Testament, uh, Timothy is the only one I could think of whose childhood is even mentioned. But again, there, both his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois are 
are mentioned as having a profound effect on him. What I want to do this morning is look at another mother of a great leader of scripture. I want to look at Hannah, the mother of Samuel. If you turn to the first book of Samuel, the first chapter, we'll take a look at that. Samuel was really a key figure in the history of Israel. He was the last of what is called the judges. He was the, uh, the judges were the people who loosely ruled Israel. Israel at that time was just a loose confederation of tribes. It was not a nation. And the judges were uh, very influential men. And he was the last of the judges, the first of the prophets. He came at a time where Israel was severely oppressed militarily on all sides. He came at a time when Israel was spiritually confused and corrupt. And he is the one who ushered in the golden age of Israel. He anointed David. Let's take a look at his mother. I'll read the first seven verses and we'll try to walk through them. Now there was a certain man from Ramathim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, fortunately, short names, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. This guy Elkanah, uh, he says an Ephraimite, actually he was a Levite, and and is from a a family of Levites who lived up in Ephraim. Uh, Levites didn't have any territory of their own. They had to live among the other people. So he's from the family of Levi, and his family lived up in Ephraim, and sometime we know that Elkanah moved down to Ramah, which is a city just about five miles north of Jerusalem. And every year he'd go up to Shiloh to worship. And Shiloh was another maybe 20 miles northeast of, of where Jerusalem was. And he had two wives. One of them had children, and the other one didn't. Some speculate that uh, perhaps he married Hannah first. And when, after a time, it became obvious that she was unable to have children, he married Pinan as well so that he could have children. In that culture, it was extremely important to have a son. It was more than just a desire like it is often in our culture. It was, it was necessary for their, their passing on of, of property and inheritance and keeping property within the tribe so that it didn't get dispersed to the other tribes. Very important to carry on the name. That was a priority in Israelite law and Israelite practice and custom. So whatever the case, whether or not that's why he married Peninnah or not, he had two wives. One had children, the other didn't. And every year they'd pack up the whole family, get into Winnebago and head for Shiloh. They'd go up there and uh, worship at the temple. It was actually a tabernacle. The temple hadn't been built yet. The tabernacle was the portable temple that the people had carried through the wilderness. And when they got into the Promised Land, they set it up permanently at Shiloh. Jerusalem was where the, the permanent temple was, and it, it, uh, was still, Jerusalem was still in the hands of the Jebusites. It was another 50 years after this that David conquered Jerusalem, 
and another 50 years after that that Solomon built the temple. Just to give you some perspective, this is happening at the same time that Samson is starting to kill Philistines just east of where they are. But anyway, uh, they travel up and they, they go to make their sacrifices. And when they would make a sacrifice, they would kill the animal and cook it on the altar. And part of that meat would be taken off and given to the priest, and that would be their food. And another part would be burnt, and that would be for God. And the final, the rest of it, all that was left over, would be taken by the family. And the family would eat it in a worship feast. So every time they went to Shiloh and, and had their feast, um, Elkanah would divide up the portions, and he'd give some to Peninnah, and he'd give some to her for her sons and for her daughters, and she had her big plateful. And then he would turn and give two pieces to Hannah, because he loved her and didn't want her to feel bad. So he gave her a double portion, saying basically, I love you just as much as if you had a son. But still, the contrast was there. Every year they went up, and every year she was reminded that she didn't have children. She looked over at Pinna, and Pinna had this big platter full of piled high of meat. She looked in her hand, and there was two little pieces of meat. And the contrast was there, and it hurt. She desperately wanted children, and she was hurting. And that would have been hard enough to be reminded of this over and over every year. But to make things worse, worse, Pinna just kept making sure she noticed, kept getting her digs in. We don't know exactly how she did it, but she, every time she would, what, what verse 6 says, that she would stir Hannah up inside and uh, just make it all the worse. And how unfair it must have seemed to Hannah that this cruel, heartless co-wife of hers, who should have been as close to her as a sister, uh, was instead uh, hurting her like this. And this woman could get pregnant and have babies, and she couldn't. That just must have seemed horribly unfair. must have been very difficult for her to take. You know, I don't know if any um, who haven't had difficulty in having children can really identify with the pain that Hannah's going through or that other people are going through. In the United States, 15% of all couples of childbearing age are unable to have children. That's 15%. That's real high. That's one out of every six in a congregation our size, that means there's at least 40 to 45 couples who cannot have children. And there are some hurting people, especially the ladies. And they really are hurting. Now, I'm sure none of us would intentionally aggravate that pain. But in a church like this, there's a lot of pressure to have children. There's a lot of little questions being asked all the time, a lot of teasing going on. And there really is also, far more severely, a, a feeling that you're not quite in the in-group if you don't have a family. Feeling like you're a little bit left out. And that's hard, especially for people who are unable to have children. I didn't realize how extensive that pressure was until my wife Becky and I discovered that we were unable to give birth. Then I started noticing it. I started seeing how much it was, how extensive it was, and how many people among us are in that situation where they cannot have children, and how it hurts them. I think we have to realize that God's got different plans for different people. And God is a good God, and he has good plans. For some, his plan is that they will raise foster children. For some, it will be for them to adopt, like Becky and I have. For others, it will be that they be childless and have more time to devote to his service. Whatever, God is in control of fertility. And we can leave that to him. And we need to be sensitive. You know, I realize that this pressure comes out of a a good desire, a good motive. People who have children 
and enjoy them, want that joy for other people. And that's good. But we've got to start realizing how this affects other people, how it hurts. While I'm at it, let me make a plug for singles. We've got a lot of single adults in this, in this church. And again, we inadvertently, but fairly consistently, leave them out here. They, they get the feeling that they're really not part of the heart of this church. I guess the bottom line is this. If you're, if you're married, enjoy it. Praise God. It's a good thing. And it's, and it's even good to want that joy for other people. But be sensitive to uh, how that's affecting people who are not married, singles, people who really want a spouse. If you've got children, enjoy it. Delight in them. They're a gift of God, and they're great. And in fact, again, it's all right to want that joy for other people. But also realize the effect that that's having on people who are childless and who can't have children. Be sensitive to them. Go out of your way to comfort them. Go out of your way to hear through their ears. Go out of your way to include childless and singles in, the, in your life and in the life of this congregation. Anyway, let's get back to the, uh, the story. Here's uh, Hannah. She's really hurting. She's uh, year after year being reminded of her childless state. And she's got a, a, a fellow wife who's giving her the, the jab every time, making it all the worse. And here comes Mr. Sensitive. I like Elkanah. I can identify with Elkanah. You know, he really loves his wife. But he can't understand why she doesn't just move on. I mean, sure, you can't have kids. That's a bummer. I'm sad. You're sad. Everybody's sad. But let's leave it behind and move on. You know, why do we have to come back to this year after year? You know, every year we go to Shiloh, and every year she blows our vacation. <laughs> We've got the barbecue, everything's going great, and she cries and mopes and won't eat, and it happens year after year. There's got to be an end to this. So look at verse 8. He said, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Literally, why is your heart evil or unhealthy? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Come on, Hannah. Let's move on. Now, why are you doing this? Don't you know I love you? Isn't that enough? And he's, he's, he's offended. He's taking it personally that she's bummed out. He's, 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 he's uh, feeling like, like somehow that's a, an insult to him. And he's, he's annoyed. He's irritated at her. Well, I read this and I hear myself. And I'm sure uh, a lot of you husbands, if you listen, will hear yourselves. That we love our wives. And uh, we really do want to help them and to serve them. But when they have a, a deep hurt that just keeps coming up over and over again, it's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to really identify with it. And we say, you know, why can't we just move on? Why do you keep bringing it up? Why does this always have to ruin everything? And as we think about those questions, why, and can't come up with any answer that we can identify with, we think, aha, there must be something wrong. She must not be dealing with this right. There must be an evil here. Men, let me encourage you to get in your head something. Women are different. Okay? And that different does not mean wrong, and it in no way means inferior. But it does mean different. 
And the fact that you cannot identify with what they're feeling or going through doesn't mean they're playing games. Doesn't mean they are, are insulting you. Doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong. And we need to learn that. And we need to learn to listen. And to listen over and over and over again. We need to try to help our wives come to an understanding to, to, to deal with whatever they're going through. But when our answers don't work, and they usually don't, don't get irritated. Don't get angry. Don't resent them. They're not just trying to manipulate you. They're not just looking for more, uh, more strokes or more uh, uh, affirmations or some other way just trying to cop out on life. Listen to them. God gave you the woman he gave you so that you could learn, so that you could be a real man of God, become sensitive and understanding and see the world as it is. So learn from them. Work through it together. Take it together to God and see what he will teach you. Women, I want to make an apology. We men will try to get better at loving you, at understanding. But I think you're going to have to face the fact now we're going to let you down. And we're going to be inadequate. Humans are always inadequate support systems. We cannot really hold each other up. We can try, and we should. We should grow better at it, but we can't do it. Whether you're uh, a male or female, whether you're married or single, whether you've got no children or you've got kids hanging all over you, people are not going to prove adequate as support. It's just a fact, and you've got you to deal with that. Let's look at what Hannah does with her, her pain, with her situation, her need for support. Verse uh, 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh, after the feast was over. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple. And she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly and made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. In her pain, she comes to the Lord and cries before him. And you get the feeling that she just can't quite express what seems to be inexpressible. She says, look at me, God. Remember me. Don't forget. God, you're not listening. She's got the feeling that God's not paying attention. He's not keeping his mind on the game. And she says, God, please listen. Somebody's got to listen to me. Now, what she does then is she... she uh, uh, makes a vow. She says, you give me a son, I'll give him right back to you, and I'll never cut his hair. Now, that latter part isn't because she had something against barbers. It was part of what we call a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow in the Old Testament was a, a commitment somebody took upon themselves to set themselves aside to serve God exclusively for a period of time. And during that period of time, there were a set of requirements that, that uh, were mainly uh, three things. One was they could not touch alcohol during that period of time. They couldn't drink wine. They couldn't even drink grape juice. They couldn't even eat grapes or raisins. They had to stay completely away from alcohol. Secondly, they had to stay completely away from dead bodies. Uh, they just couldn't be near them. In fact, there was a, there's a provision. If, you, if a Nazarite is standing there and somebody drops dead next to them and they can't get away fast enough, then they had to go through some sacrifices and some ritual and cut their hair and start all over again. And the third requirement was that they not cut their hair for the period of time they're under a vow and let it grow until they completed their vow 
and then they would shave it all off and they would actually uh, offer the hair up on, a, on an altar. So what, what Hannah is saying is uh, he'll be a Nazarite for his whole life. He'll be completely devoted to you and to your service his whole life if you give me this son. She's bargaining with God. Can we bargain with God? Does that really work? Is that right? You know, I think I could give you a fairly coherent argument why that is in contradiction to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And I could uh, detail my objections to people making these, trying to make these type of bargains with God. The problem is uh, it worked. It worked for Hannah. I was talking to a, a dear friend this last week who, um, as a young Christian, had three miscarriages. She was unable to carry a, a baby to term. And um, she stumbled across this passage, and being too young to know any better, she started praying this prayer. And she attributes the birth of her first son to her praying this prayer. And she's confident that God heard and God honored. Realize this is not magic. It just points out that God really does hear prayer. God is listening. Sometimes he refuses our requests because he loves us and he has something better for us. God gives only bread, not stones. God gives only fish, not scorpions. But he does hear. Today it seems naive, even foolish, to pour your heart out before the Lord, to really tell him what you're thinking, to be honest with him, to say, God, listen, you're not paying attention. I'm hurting. We're afraid to trust God that much, to really be that vulnerable to him, of him letting us down. Maybe that's why we have so often impoverished and empty and sterile lives, because we don't. Hannah was not ashamed. She comes to the Lord. But look what happens when she does, starting in verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart only. Excuse me, only her lips were moving. But her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman. For I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you've asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This poor woman. You know, her husband doesn't understand her. She's got a woman, a, a woman she lives with that's giving her the jabs, and she's hurting desperately. She pours her heart out to the Lord. He's not paying attention. She doesn't feel like he's listening. And now this priest comes over and climbs all over her. You know, people, we who supposedly know the Lord, can be so cruel. We see somebody acting strangely, doing something we don't understand, and we jump to conclusions. Eli jumped to a conclusion, and then he jumped all over her. We see somebody who is, is, uh, is acting strange, and we assume there must be something wrong here. We see a young person who's, who's struggling, trying to find their identity, and, and, and drowning in peer pressure. And we jump all over them. We climb all over them. We see a, a, a man or a woman in a, in a difficult, a joyless marriage. And we're quick to confront them about their behavior. We see a divorcee trying to relearn how to relate to people of the opposite sex. And we watch them carefully to make sure they don't slip and step over the line. You know, we need to give people truth. 
We need to help them understand God's standards for behavior because the truth frees and that's healthy and that's going to help them. But we also need to learn to listen, to really hear what they're going through and not jump to conclusions. The quickest way to make a fool out of yourself is to jump to conclusions. I had a guy tell me, he's driving down the freeway and a car kept coming up beside him and honking and it was really starting to irritate him and he, he got angry. He uh, rolled his window down and uh, gave him a defective peace sign, started screaming at the guy. <laughs> and as he made eye contact with the guy, he looked and the guy was pointing like this. He looked back and his gas cap was gone and his gas was pouring all over the, uh, the uh, road. What a fool he felt like <laughs> for getting mad at this guy and yelling at this guy who was trying to help him. I uh, can remember once when I was a kid, we were in a rather seedy part of a big city and we were kind of lost. So we pulled up to this phone booth to uh, use the phone book to try to figure out where we were going. As we stopped, this old uh, kind of dirty looking man who, who looked, was walking funny, looked like he might be drunk, came out and tried to open the door of our car. And we freaked out. I mean, that scared us. We locked all the doors, started shouting, sped off. And from the back seat, I looked back and I could see this poor, confused old man holding a white cane wondering what had happened to the cab that he thought had just come to pick him up. And you know, that really profoundly affected me. I, I hurt for that guy for a long time. Proverbs uh, 14.29 says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Eli uh, jumped to a conclusion, jumped on Hannah, and he's feeling like a fool now. So he tries to make up for it in verse uh, 17. He says, go in peace and may God, the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. Now, this wasn't really a promise that what she prayed for would happen, but she took it that way. From that point on, it says in verse 18 that she went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. I think it's interesting to notice that her distress was not relieved by becoming pregnant. Her distress was relieved by the conviction she had that God heard, that God was paying attention now. And he'd take care of her. He would do what is right. And when she was convinced of that, she had peace. And she was able to eat and to, to no longer be sad. That was her, the turning point in her life. Verse 19, And they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to the house, their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. She named him Samuel because I have asked him of the Lord. Samuel does not mean ask of the Lord. That would have been Sha'al El. Samuel, Shamu El, means God hears. She says, God was paying attention. He remembered me. He did have his mind on the game. I asked God and he heard me, so I'm going to name this boy Samuel. God hears. 21. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer up to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. 
Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. So next time the family goes up to Shiloh, she says, I'm not going to go. I uh, have made a decision. I'm going to keep my promise to the Lord. And I don't want to go up there until I'm ready. I don't want to get in the habit of going and not leaving, not leaving Samuel because I'm determined to do what I said I would do. When a child was weaned in those days, they were usually older than, than normal around here. Uh, a child in those days was weaned until they were at least about three. So if she weaned him until he was a little over three, and then they went up the next year, maybe Samuel's four. And he takes him up and presents him before Eli. It's interesting what she says when she presents him. Verses 26 and 27. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. She said, Eli, hey, I'm the lady you thought was drunk, remember? But this is what I was praying for, this little boy, this little four-year-old boy. And I asked God, and he heard me, and he gave them to me. Verse 28 is a, in Hebrew is a play on words. It doesn't come across in the English, so let me see if I can get it across. It says, So I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. That word they translate dedicated in the NASB the margin note says lint. It does not mean lint at all. It's not what the word means. She, does, she didn't lend him to the Lord. She left him there. She gave him to the Lord. The word translated dedicated is the same word that's translated ask of him in verse 27. And what, she's, what she's trying to say is, I will make him ask of the Lord, literally. But what she's meaning is... I asked the Lord for this boy, and he gave, her to, gave him to me. Now he's asking, and I'm going to give him back. I asked, and he heard, and he gave me. Now he's asking, and I hear, and I'm going to give back. So she left the boy there, her four-year-old son. Well, I have trouble leaving my four-year-old uh, for a weekend, much less for a year. She, she knew she'd only see him every year as they came up for the sacrifice. And Eli was really not your best father type. The, the sons that were mentioned earlier in verse 3, Hophni and Phinehas, were notorious rogues. They would use their position as priests to rob people that came to offer sacrifices. They were extremely wicked men. So uh, leaving, Eli was not the kind of man you wanted to leave your four-year-old son with. Nor his sons would you want associated with your boy. And, and I'm sure Hannah knew this. But she trusted God that much. She knew God that well. She said, God can handle it. If he wasn't going to take care of my boy, he wouldn't have asked me for him. She knew God that well. She had that kind of confidence that she was as secure leaving her son with God as she would have been leaving him with a grandparent. Or someone else she knew loved that boy. It still must have been hard. But you'll notice she does not say, God, this is too much, and start drowning in self-pity. doesn't submerge herself into to crying. In fact, 
Quite the opposite. Chapter 2 starts with her saying, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn exalts in the Lord. She starts praising God. Chapter 2, if you've got time sometime, study through it. it. You'll see how well this woman knew her God. And that was her confidence. God is trustworthy. He's paying attention. He's listening. He knows what's going on. His mind is on the game. So she can, she can keep her promise. She can respond to God's request. Now, what's the point of all this? Ron wanted me to be sure and clarify. For you mothers of two-year-olds who have been wondering what you're going to do with that uh, little angel, we do not want to find them out in the lobby after the service. <laughs> Take them home with you, please. But we do want you to give your children to God. You want the best for them, and that's the way it should be. You want them to be fulfilled in life, and that's good. But realize that fulfillment in life is going to be found as they know God, as they're devoted to Him, as they find their peace and security in Him, regardless of what else happens, regardless of any other circumstance. Don't focus on your desire or your, your concern that your child be popular. Don't focus on your concern that they be healthy. Don't focus on your concern that they do well in school so that they can uh, get a good, secure job when they get older. Don't focus on your desire for them to have a good family later on. See, Hannah learned that fulfillment was not found in the things God gives, no matter how good they are. I mean, she enjoyed Samuel, I'm sure. But she realized her, her fulfillment was found in God, who is the giver. Focus on that. Focus on your desire for your children to know Him and to be locked up with Him. And let them see your heart. Realize children are gifts of God. God gave them to you, now give them back. I'd encourage you, especially if they're still young, it's easier when they're still young, and, and, and to give them back, to say, God, this boy, this girl is yours. I will take care of them with the resources you give me to the best of my ability, but this child is yours. You might have to do that quite a few times throughout your life, but do it. Then you know that God is paying attention, that God will take care of that child. And whatever fears you confront, whatever horrible realities actually come down in your life, whether it's an illness or an accident or even something as horrible as kidnapping or, or, or rebellion, whatever happens, you know that God is paying attention and God is taking care. And that can give you a peace in the midst of that pain, to that intense pain. And you can be freed up from panic, freed up to love those children and to help them get through whatever it is they're getting through. Give them to God. He loves them and they're his little ones. Finally, I think for all of us, we can learn from Hannah what to do with our pain. Whether our, our pain is uh, because we're childless, whether our pain is because uh, we are in a difficult, a, a bad marriage, whether our pain is because we so desperately want a spouse, or we're just flat out miserable, lonely. Whether our pain is because uh, we're sick, or someone that we love or near to us is dying or is being destroyed in some way or another, or whether our pain is, is because uh, the security we had in a, in a good job has evaporated. Whatever the, our source of pain, 
Look what Hannah did with it. Take it to God. He's paying attention. He's listening. Samuel means God hears. And he does. Let's pray. Lord God, I do praise you that you do hear. That often we don't understand what's going on. We don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. And sometimes it just feels like you're not listening. Like you're not even there. Lord, we... We desperately need you. And so I ask that you remind us constantly to bring you our cares because you do care for us. That you would call us constantly back to yourself and that we would rely on you as a resource. That we would grow in our confidence that you hear and that we can relax in that in spite of whatever circumstance is developing around us. Lord, I uh, I just praise you that you are paying attention and that you've proved that and in sending your son. And you've proved that over and over in my life. Lord, I also just pray for the parents here, that they would give their children to you, that they would keep their focus on, on that relationship with you. They would give them over to you over and over again and trust you and be freed up from suffocating their children, smothering them with, with fears, would be freed up from uh, being immobilized by the traumas that happen in life and would be able to know that you are good and that you are loving their children. Lord, we we just, again, need your strength for these things. We pray them in your Son's name. Amen.